no plan survives first contact, you know, so, you know, in, in the military, you're, you're going to have a battle plan, whether it's tactical or a strategic plan, you know, but as soon as that first shot's fired, you know, that plan is going to go out the window. Nothing is going to happen exactly like you planned it, you know, but if you've put forth the effort um, into the planning process, you know, you're able to adjust more quickly and more seamlessly than you would if you, if you didn't, you know, go through the mental gymnastics to get that plan done. It is a common saying amongst real estate investors that you make money when you buy, not when you sell. While this catchy phrase has value, it fails to convey how easy it is to lose money through poor property management. Whether you self-manage or hire a professional, it is important to understand how to navigate the common pitfalls and challenges with rental properties without losing your shirt or your mind. That's why you have tuned in to Maximizing Your Property Value the Apartment Owner's Guide to Operating Rental Properties as a Successful Business. I'm your host, John Stiles, real estate agent and team leader of the VIP Real Estate Group at Bridge Realty. As a current multifamily investor and former property manager myself, I understand the headaches and difficulties of keeping an investment property from becoming a money pit and time sucker. It takes a solid business plan. It takes tested systems and it takes key team members to actually find success. So let's take a deep dive and maximize your property value. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Maximizing Your Property Value. I'm your host, John Stiles, with Bridge Realty, and I'm so thankful that you have joined us today. I think you're in for a real treat. Uh, today, I am pleased to introduce to you our guest, who is Brian Briscoe. Brian, thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks, John. I appreciate you having me. Of course. And uh, just a little bit about Brian. He is the principal and founding member of the real estate investment firm Four Oaks Capital, LLC. He is also a lieutenant colonel in the United States Marine Corps and brings years of leadership and management experience in his to his real estate investments. As a Marine officer, he has proven his ability to plan, lead, and effectively accomplish missions in both training and combat situations. He has earned graduate degrees from both the University of Utah and Naval Postgraduate School and is currently stationed at the Pentagon. He has actively invested in the real estate since 2007. Uh, Brian is an advisor in Michael Blanc's Dealmaker Mastermind and a member of Michael's Elite Investor Club. So, uh, great experience. And by the way, uh, thank you for your service to our country. Um, can you, I appreciate that. Yeah. Can you, uh, fill in the audience a little bit more, uh, about your background, how you got into real estate investing? You know, um, so once upon a time I wanted to be a college professor, you know, and, uh, you know, kind of was going through the process. I actually was uh, going to school not far from where you're, where you're located, uh, at the university of Minnesota, um, starting a PhD program in, in math. Um, and at the time the world trade center went down, you know, so you know, that, that, that very much disrupted the world as most people know. Um, but for me, I was already a reservist and for me, that decision or that, that event kind of catapulted my, my active duty career, decided to go active duty. Um, and somewhere, you know, my, my first duty station, you know, I was in Okinawa, Japan, um, I, I picked up the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, um, I didn't grow up in, you know, a, a wealthy household, you know, my, 
you know, we, we had our basic needs met. Okay. We never had, um, we never had a lack, you know, but we didn't, we didn't have bells and whistles, you know? So, um, picked up, uh, the book rich dad, poor dad once, and it really resonated with me. I thought, you know what, the, the, these are a lot of the things that, uh, um, that I had learned, you know, so rich dad compares his rich dad to his poor dad, you know, all of a sudden everything that, uh, you know, poor dad said, I'm like, you know, that's kind of how my, my father viewed things. Um, you know, so one thing that really, um, I took from that book was real estate was, was a good way to, to get into the game. All right. So I decided, Hey, you know, I'm in the military, you know, while I'm in the military, I'll be moving every two to three years. And if I'm going to move every two to three years, I might as well buy a house every time I move. All right. So 2006, I moved to San Diego, um, horrible time to buy in San Diego. And fortunately I recognized that. Um, and so I bought a house in my hometown, you know, so I, I made the goal after reading that book that I, I would buy a single family house every year or, or try to buy a single family house every year. And, and the idea was just, you know, you get somebody else to pay down your loan, you get a little bit of cash flow coming in, you know, you get the, the value of leverage and appreciation and all the wonderful things that real estate brings. You know, if I could, if I could just rinse and repeat that everywhere I moved, then, you know, however long I stayed in the military, you know, if it was a 20 year career, I'd, I'd end up with six or eight houses um, to be basically fall back on. So, you know, it didn't work out in San Diego the first year because it was, it was just way too expensive. Um, you know, like I said, fortunately, you know, I saw clearly enough at the time to, to buy somewhere else. Um, after the market crashed, I bought a second house um, in San Diego this time, you know, at a substantially reduced price. Um, and, you know, that, that's basically how I started. Um, you know, the, the financial markets tightened. Um, getting credit, getting loans was a lot more difficult. And so I ended up, you know, settling with, with just two houses. You know, when I, when I went to buy my third house, um, I called two banks, you know, and they're the two banks that I had bank accounts with. And I asked them both for a loan. Both banks told me no. And at the time I'm like, mm, all right, guess I'll put this on hold for a little bit. So that's what got me into it. You know, um, part of me wishes that, uh, you know, back in, you know, 2009, 2010 timeframe, when, when I called those banks up and, and they said, Hey, not now I would have kept on pressing, but, uh, um, not quite how it worked out. You know, you can't, can't change that. Um, anyway, fast forward several years later, you know, I start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel for my Marine Corps career. You know, I, I hit my 19 year active duty mark, um, in about a month, you know? And so, you know, my, my time in the military is winding down. And I, I kind of realized that, you know, if I didn't do anything, if I didn't start planning for the, you know, post-retirement, post-Marine Corps, um, that I'd end up doing a, a, just a regular job like everyone else. And that's, that's not what I wanted to do. So anyway, long story short, you know, I, I decided to get back into, get, get back into the real estate game, something that always fascinated me. I've always read about, um, and I always intended on doing more of, um, but uh, what, what really piqued my interest was reading books and listening to podcasts about multifamily, you know, and so that was that was kind of the idea, you know, hey, I can I can scale faster. I can um, I really I can scale faster. You know, I, I can get to my goal quicker, you know, by, you know, buying 10 units at a time instead of, you know, one unit per year or one house per year for 10 straight years. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's what got me interested. That's what got me in, you know, right now we've got three different apartment buildings, um, all in South Carolina. 
Uh, we have um, one more under contract. Um, we're assuming a loan. We're just wait, waiting for Freddie Mac to say, you know, we're good to assume. And then we'll have another 80. And, you know, right before all the you know movement restrictions came down, we had another LOI signed on another 152 units in Columbia um, and, you know, 80 units in uh, Clemson, South Carolina. So, you know, South Carolina is where, where we're at right now. Um, I'm stationed in D.C., but you know, I can get down there frequently. Um, but in general, Southeast U.S. is is uh, kind of our turf. Okay. Well, yeah, that's a great story. I know a lot of people start off in single-family houses, and, you know, that is a good starting place for many. Um, but then you saw the ability to scale up by going after apartment buildings. And, um, yeah, you've just been building on that. So what, wonderful. Um so what I like to focus on in this show is how we manage those properties so that we can really realize the full potential of that investment. And um, we often need to do this through some intentional business planning, some systems and some processes. So the first thing I want to ask you about is when you think about business planning for rental properties, what are some key features of that business plan that come to mind for you? You know, some of the some of the key features, you know, we we do a, spend a lot of time and effort looking at the comparables, you know. So, you know, when, when you look at what makes an apartment work is is you've got to be, you know, in line with what's left and right of the property, you know. So, you know, we, we like to we, we operate in, in the value add space. We like to find something that's trailing the market average, you know, whether it hasn't been renovated, whether, you know, it hasn't been managed properly. You know, we, we try to find something that's trailed in, in some aspect um, and then bring it up to or maybe a little bit above the, the average baseline around. So, you know, looking at what our general business plan is, you know, it usually in, involves a pretty hefty renovation budget. You know, we want the exteriors to look good. We want people's first impression when they when they drive into a place to put in an application or, or not even to put an application just to view a, an apartment. They drive into the place and they, they look at it and it's been well maintained, you know, so, um, so far, everything that we've purchased, we've come in with a budget to, you know, reseal the parking lot, you know, because that's something that immediately, you know, people realize, I mean, consciously or subconsciously, you know, a brand new parking lot looks a lot better than one full of potholes. Um, you know, we just finished uh, painting and, and wrapping, you know, one of the buildings, you know, the windows in the buildings and painting all the trim. And, you know, before and after pictures look, you know, a lot different. And we're, we're working on, you know, siding in another building. So when, when you look at our, our plan, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, what's, what do we need to do to make this place appealing for potential renters? You know, all within the, the local area, you know, without going above and beyond what's the local area. I mean, if you're in a C-class area and you put in A-class, you know, features, it's just not going to work. So, I think the biggest biggest thing in, the, in 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 our business plan is you know working a budget for renovations. You know how much are these renovations going to cost us, and on the backside, what can we expect in rent growth um, after we've we've done this? Okay, yeah, that makes sense. You know, understanding your customer base is really important for any business, and that goes exactly for multifamily as well. And I think that's overlooked quite a bit. Um, because people just assume, well, the renters are who they are. They're just going to come. But, you know, if, if you're providing a product that 
you know, matches one demographic and, and that's not the demographic that is naturally occurring in your geography, then you might not have a good fit there. Yeah. And that, that's absolutely true. I mean, um, you know, people, you know, birds of a feather flock together, you know, it's, it's very cliche to say it, but it's, it's true. You know, you, you go to some neighborhoods and, you know, everything looks the same. I mean, you peel, peel away the, the veneer, but the people, the people are very similar, you know? So, um, yeah, so we're, we're, we're very careful on that one. We, we do check out the comps. We do, um, sometimes secret shop, um, you know, and, and sometimes we'll, we'll call other apartments and just, you know, be blatant, blunt and honest. Like, Hey, we're looking at buying, you know, this apartment building down the road from you. What do you guys think about that apartment building? You know, things like that. And, you know, we will, if, if we can get them talking, you know, we'll ask, you know, lots of questions about the area just from their perspective, because they're there every day. And, you know, I'm coming in from, from DC. Um, you know, we, we put a lot of effort into, into understanding these areas, but, but we're not there 24 seven. Yep. So anyway. I, I like that strategy too. I mean, that's a great way to find other opportunities or even just to create some camaraderie with your uh, you know, fellow business operators in the, that like location. Yeah. You know, and, and something else that, that we're also doing is we're, we're in a way we're interviewing for, you know, our property manager, you know, so, um, you know, we, we only have three, we have three units right now. One's in Columbia, you know, and two are in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And just because of the size, you know, we have different property managers for each one. And the next one we pick up is far enough away from these two that the same property manager is not going to work it. So, you know, so far, everything we've, we've purchased, we've had to have different management companies, you know, so there, there's an interview process in, in getting that manager there. And, you know, we'll, we'll call neighboring, you know, neighboring apartment communities, you know, see who manages them. Um, we'll also talk with the current managers. I mean, the least disruptive thing for the tenants is to keep the same property manager, you know, so that's, uh, you know, if it is, you know, fairly well managed, um, then that's always an option for us is to keep the current manager on board. You know, so if, if the current manager um, matches, you know, what we're looking for when their, their ideology matches what we're trying to do, um, you know, that, that's, that's going to be top of our, our list almost every time. Okay. Well, that's a topic I want to dive into a little bit more with the relationship with your property manager. But before we do, mm-hmm. Let's go back a little bit to the topic of budgeting. And I think that's where a lot of people can get it wrong, you know, because there's so many unknowns. And especially if you're in a new market dealing with new contractors, new relationships, um, it can be hard to know who to trust. It can be hard to know, again, what level of finishes to make. And then if those prices are reasonable for that marketplace. So how do you approach that budgeting aspect to make sure you're making realistic expectations there. You know, we're, we're always sharpening our pencil. I mean, when we, when we underwrite a deal, you know, we, we probably underwrite, you know, a dozen, you know, maybe 15 deals for every offer that we put in, um, you know, but when we're underwriting a deal, you know, we're, we're just looking at, you know, what, what averages are, you know, and we've been, we've been underwriting enough and talking to enough contractors that we have an idea, you know, of how much, you know, $5,000 per unit buys, how much 10,000 per unit buys, on interiors, um, and we've got enough quotes on on exteriors and roofs to to know give us kind of a ballpark, you know. So, um, 
you know, when, when we put the LOI in, you know, we're happy with a ballpark number, you know, so um, we'll, we'll add, you know, a, a little buffer on, on, on our numbers when we put the LOI in and at every step in the process, you know, we're taking it to the next level. Okay. So, you know, LOIs, you know, are, are non-binding. Um, and as long as we're not putting hard money down, which we've not done yet, um, as long as we're not having to put hard money down, you know, we're happy going in and during the due diligence period, you know, bringing in a bunch of these contractors, you know, and, um, and contractors are a little more willing to, to give you estimates if it's more likely they're going to get a job out of it. You know, if you're calling a contractor up and saying, hey, you know, I'm thinking of buying this apartment, you know, that's one thing. If you call part, uh, somebody up and say, hey, we've got this place under contract, okay, we're going to close in about 60 to 90 days. You know, we want you to come in and give us an estimate. You know, and, and at that point, you know, we'll, we'll bring several people in to, to give estimates of, of work on, on various various aspects of the apartments. You know, somebody for the siding, maybe somebody for the roofs. You know, if one co- company can do both, that's even better. You know, landscaping, you know, the, the internal um, repairs that we're doing. You know, so we just get various professionals to come in and give us estimates and multiple estimates on, on different aspects of the work. So um, after all that, we look at everything that comes in, you know, and, and, you know, sometimes there's a wide range. You know, I remember uh, one roofing job that we had quoted. Um, the lowest quote we got was 64,000. The highest quote we had was 210, you know? Wow. And so it was just like, okay, you know, what's going on here? But, you know, when, when you have a range of quotes, you know, most times things are, are a little bit tighter, you know, so, you know, um, the shot group, you know, that's, that's a military term for how close you are to your, you know, how, how close each round impact is, okay. you know, usually your shot group is, is a lot tighter, you know, so every, all your estimates are in the same range. Um, but yeah, basically, you know, we, we start with a vague idea based on experience um, and then we're, we're, we're refining as we go on. Okay. Yeah. And then, you know, after you have acquired the property and you're starting to implement that value add, how do you manage that process with the contractors and make sure, you know, of course they do a good job, the quality is there, and then they mm-hmm. stay on target with the time frame that's expected um, and stay in budget? You know, most of, most of that, you know, is um, property managers, you know, so um, for example, we, we have a 32 unit in in Columbia, which we're renovating um, extensively. And, you know, we've worked hand in hand with the property manager on the whole thing. You know, um, they they are getting an extra cut for everything that they do. They, they, they tack on 10 percent for every um, every outside contractor that comes in and does work. You know, so, you know, we'll, we'll leverage the property manager as much as possible. So, you know, um, we'll, we'll come to the table at closing with a couple of quotes and then we'll say, hey, property manager, um, here are the quotes we got pre-closing, um, you know, and in most cases, you know, we, we selected a property manager prior to, and a lot of these quotes have been done with the property manager. Um, but we will sit down with the property manager and say, here's the work we want to do. You know, here's our budget. Let's let's work this out, you know, and um, if we'll leverage their contacts as well and just say, hey, if, if there's anybody else, you know, that can be competitive on these you know, let's get them into the property as well. And, you know, maybe, you know, give us one more data point. Um, but yeah, we, we work with the property managers very closely. 
Um, we make sure they understand what we're looking for. Um, we make sure that uh, um, the contractors understand what we're looking for. And once once we've worked through the property manager to you know, figure out what vendors or contractors we want to use, um, we'll generally get on the phone ourselves with the contractor just to make sure that there's no nothing lost in translation with the middleman. Um, and then the other thing that we, we do, you know, for example, my um, one of my partners, Todd, you know, sent me a video this morning. You know, he's he's out there checking up on on the progress. You know, we can't be there every day. So we do have to rely on the property manager to do a lot of it. Um, but, uh, you know, we we probably get down between the, the four of us in Four Oaks Capital. You know, we we average about once a month visiting every one of our apartments. Hmm. Um, you know, in, in hindsight, we could be a little more deliberate in planning that. But, you know, a lot of it's just, well, I'm going down there for this anyway, or we have a due diligence trip scheduled. So we'll visit our other apartments. Um, but it's, it's a combination of property management and then making deliberate trips down there just to check up on things. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, let's talk now about that property management relationship. Um, you know, some people choose to manage properties themselves. Some people will kind of build a property management company within their investment company. And obviously, there's the third-party uh, management option. And it sounds like that's what you've gone with. Was that kind of a no-brainer from the start, or how did you make that decision? Well, because of our situation, um, it ended up being the only choice, um, you know, that, that made sense. You know, I, I live in the D.C. area. Um, I've got about, you know, a year and, and a couple of months left in, in my active duty, you know, career. Um, so I can't personally manage. Um, you know, my, my wife is from Columbia, you know, and we have, you know, friends and family. So we're going down there a lot anyway. Um, one of my partners lives in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. One of my partners lives in Wilmington, uh, but he was born and raised in Columbia. You know, one of my partners is in New Jersey right now. So self-managing is not an option because of where we're at. Um, doing it in-house, you know, there, there, there's a lot of, um, you know, look out, you, you've been a property manager before, you know, there, there's certifications, yep. there's, you know, knowing the law um, is, you know, there, there's, there's lots of risk involved to doing that yourself. Um, so just to, to avoid the risk, you know, we, we decided, you know, third property is the way to go. Um, now, as we scale, you know, we are probably first going to bring in, you know, an, an ex an asset manager, somebody who can do that for us and just manage the managers. But, you know, looking at our, our, our long-term vision, you know, I, I think by the time we get to, you know, 1500, 2000 units, you know, we're probably going to have somebody in house managing it ourselves. Okay. Um, and then, and then one more point is, you know, we're also looking, you know, right now you, know, we have a total of 88 units, you know, we, we've got, you know, a 40 unit complex, a 30 unit complex and a 16 unit complex, you know, um, numbers are at, you know, estimates. So it's not going to add up to 88, but you know, none of those are large enough for on-site property managers. You know, okay. So you have to have, you know, a company that has, you know, local reach out. Um, once you get into the hundred plus space and it makes sense to have on-site property manager, then you can man, then you, then you can hire somebody to, to do the day-to-day -day stuff for you and manage it from off-site. But that's that's a luxury right now. We don't have, um, you know, everything we purchase from here on out, we're looking at the, the on-site model. You know, so I think our, our purchasing criteria is now, you know, 80 units and above, um, which is right about the point to where on-site property management becomes affordable. Okay. Yeah, and 
you know, obviously you and I might know some of this without saying it, but just for the whole discussion purposes, what are some of the benefits of having on-site management versus uh, kind of a, a local manager that does that from off-site? You know, I mean, on-site manager is always there. You know, the, the off-site, you know, managers aren't going to give you, you know, 100% attention. You know, so you have one person there who is, you know, dedicated 100% of their working hours to your property. You know, um, typically, you know, you first hire is like a, an office manager or a leasing agent. Um, and your second hire is going to be a part-time maintenance person. You know, so, I mean, you are paying their salaries, but they're keeping the place in better condition. Um, and they're a little more responsive to what the residents need. You know, if the residents need something, you know, they can make a phone call, they can put something in on the portal, or they can walk down and talk to a living, breathing human being, you know, and response times with somebody on, to, you know, on site for maintenance are a lot faster, you know, so if you compare and contrast, you know, making the phone call to a property manager whose office is, you know, five or eight miles away, you know, and waiting for them to schedule something to come in versus on-site maintenance guy. I mean, you could get, you know, same day service, um, next day service on, on a lot of the, even the minor repairs, um, you know, and I think the, the costs, you know, once, once you get to the, about the hundred unit range, you know, the cost of, of payroll and everything start um, actually being more efficient than doing doing it from offsite because you know the maintenance person you're, you're you're not paying for you know overhead for somebody else to come in and do it you're not paying for their hours you're already paying for the hourly wage through your payroll um, and so it's it's just different buckets you know you're you're paying a little bit more on payroll and you're end up paying a little less on on your overall maintenance costs because the labor is already included. Yep. Yeah, and as you mentioned, you know I used to be a property manager. I was in the scattered site model, so probably similar to what you have now where, you know, we have a, an office, but we're taking care of properties that are all over the metro. And and if you're in a large metro, you know, it can be done, but um, you're pulled in many different directions. So uh, you have to prioritize things that are urgent over things that can wait. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, and um, I think one of the mistakes I made early on with one of my single family homes is, you know, I went with a property manager that wasn't close to the property. You know, it was it was kind of on the fringe of, of their area and it was a single family home. You know, so, you know, getting them to drive out there, you know, they, they were very reluctant to do it, you know, and you know, whereas something that's, you know, a couple of miles away, you know, and that is something that we look at when it's off site is where is their office with respect to, you know, the the actual um, asset, you know, so. Um, we, we have two units in Spartanburg, South Carolina. They're about two miles apart um, from each other. And the property manager that we have right now is literally in between both of them. You have to pass the property manager, you know, the most direct route you pass the property manager's office getting there. So they're, they're about a mile from each one and they end up being, you know, pretty responsive when, when tenants call. So that's, that's definitely one thing that we look at is, you know, you know where are these guys? In, in location to our asset. Yeah. Now you mentioned interviewing a, a number of different property management companies. What were some of the other key things that you looked for to make sure it was a good fit aside from the location? Um, mm -hmm. And just things that you look for either in the company as a whole or even the personality of the managers themselves. 
Um, we do look at the personalities of the managers. Um, you know, we're, we're going to look at um, kind of what their portfolio size is, you know, what their experience level is, um, you know, how long they've been in the job. And, you know, when we, when we look at comps, we're also going to look at some of the things that they manage. Um, you know, so we're, we're going to just drive through, hey, what, what else do you manage that's close by to this area? And we'll drive through. Does it look like it's well managed? Um, you know, and sometimes we'll we'll secret shop those as well. You know, we'll, we'll put a call into their their management at a different apartment building. You know, maybe we'll do a, a Facebook marketplace. Oh, okay. So so we'll send them a Facebook message, see how long it takes them to respond. You know, or we'll we'll put in you know an inquiry on on one of the ads we see and see how long it takes them to respond. So you know, responsiveness is huge. Um, you know, um, so it's it's. And that's something we're, we're learning, you know, it's not something we did up front, but it's something that we're learning, you know, based on our experience with our property managers right now, you know, is, you know, there, there's kind of a, um, a process in getting, you know, tenants into the, uh, into leases, you know, and it's, you know, it's advertising, it's, it's bringing the leads in, it's following up on the leads and there's several points in that process, you know, so, you know, we'll, we'll try to, you know, test different points in that process with that property manager, um, you know, sometimes, and sometimes it's, it's, like I said, it's, it's secret shopping. So, um, and then when we have them on the phone, you know, we're, I like just to get to know them first, you know, just talk anything but management up front, just to see where they come from, you know, try to try to build a little bit of a relationship because, you know, end of the day, you know, um, you know, we want them to like us, you know, if they, if they like us, they're, they're going to be more willing to, um, to work with us and work for us. And, um, I've been told by people that I, I can sometimes, you know, come across as being rude. That's, that's kind of the Marine in me, you know, a little direct, but, uh, um, so, so sometimes we, we let, I let uh, my partners, you know, handle the communications with property managers. Um, but yeah, end, end of the day, you know, we're, we're looking at their performance. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at their experience and track record. Um, we're also asking people for references, you know, so, um, one, one thing we've tried to do is, you know, all of our third party vendors, you know, so our insurance, uh, our insurance broker, our, our the guy who's uh, working our loans for us, you know, we're trying to get people that are in the same area that we're focused on, which is upstate South Carolina, you know, so we're working with the line capital in Greenville. Um, we're working with assured partners for insurance out of Greenville, South Carolina, you know, and we're working with the same brokerages that, that have local offices there. Um, and it's an area where, you know, we can ask people, we can ask these other professionals for, um, for references. Hey, how do these guys do? What do you think about these guys? You know, so that, that's part of the vetting process as well is just to see what reputation they have among the other professionals in the area, you know, and I think we're, we're working hard to, to build, you know, relationships with, with lots of different people there. And the same goes across, you know, when, when we were looking for a new insurance guy, the same thing happened. We, we asked our, you know, the other people we knew in the area, hey, who does insurance in this area? Who can you introduce us to um, that can help us with A, B, or C? So that's part of the process when vetting property managers is just, you know, talking to people. Hey, how well do these guys do? What is their reputation? Yep. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, uh, if you can get some honest conversations going with other people in the marketplace, you know, they get, they'll give you the feedback that you need. And uh, also, like you talked about, shopping the other available rentals, seeing what the response time is. I, I like that a lot. I think that will be very telling for other uh, management companies out there. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And that, I mean, 
I mean, it's, it's one of those things when you know you're under a microscope, when you know you're being evaluated, you act differently. Um, you know, and I was I was actually listening to to uh, another episode of your podcast the other day and pulled some gems out of that, too. But, uh, you know, along the same lines, you know, show up without show up unannounced, you know, and, and see what's going on. Uh, I think that's what your your guest in your last episode said. And it's you know, it's something that I just added to, to our list of things to do, you know, show up unannounced every once in a while and, and see you know, how things are moving. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So uh, how have you set up uh, your routine interactions with the management company so that, you know, are there certain key performance indicators that you review on a monthly basis or how does that look like on the ongoing uh, management? Um, there, there are weekly performance indicators and there's monthly performance indicators. I mean, depending on different cycles. I mean, obviously your, your rent collections are, are better on a monthly basis because that's, that's when rents are collected. Um, you know, incidentally, you know, we've, we're, we're at about 95% collection rate for, for April, even with the COVID. So, um, you know, we, we do weekly calls with them and there, there's a spreadsheet that we bounce back and forth. You know, they thought it's actually, we moved it to Google sheets so they, so it can be, so it's just a little more streamlined, but, um, you know, things we're looking at is, you know, I think our biggest performance indicator is what our occupancy level is you know where is occupancy right now and then then looking at the things that are tied to occupancy um you know we're we're also looking at turn time you know so um on this spreadsheet we have you know when did the tenants give notice all right um and then after the notice period you know when did um when was the inspection when was the move out um when was the apartment pre-listed when was you know the apartment ready so we're tracking time from beginning to end. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's one of the, indi- that, those are just some of the indicators that we look at, you know, just trying to streamline the process. We're also looking at, you know, where leads are coming from and, you know, how many leads it takes to turn into a, a lease. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a really great things to make sure you're staying full at your rental property. Um, are there other areas like, again, going back to the kind of maintenance or other expenses or anything else that you're kind of tracking on a routine basis? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, on a routine basis, you know, we, we've also have, um, you know, our, our capital expense budget that, that we're tracking, you know, so, um, you know, at any given time, we've got several projects going on. So, um, you know, when, when we start a project, you know, we, we have an estimated completion date. You know, and we're tracking, you know, what is that completion date? What is the progress on there? Um, and then on a weekly basis, we're tracking expenses, you know. So, um, you know, every week they have, here's where we are on um, collections so far this month, month to date. Here's where we are on expenses month to date, you know. And, um, you know, our our criteria is we want all of our, you know, managed expenses, you know, the expenses that, that come out on our property management sheet, to be, to be below, you know, a certain threshold per unit, you know, so we have a, a per unit threshold that, you know, this is our goal on where we're going to keep our expenses. Um, and so far our, our property managers um, have been very good at, at keeping the expenses low um, okay. for us. So that, that's, you know, if, if your eyes on it continually, it's something that's going to, to improve. Yeah. I don't know if you feel comfortable sharing this, but what, what is an example of the threshold of uh, expenses that's acceptable to you? Um, so 
I'll give you kind of more of the process. Um, Cause the, the expenses are going to vary by, by region, but uh, we do a combination of, we, we look at the, the previous owner, you know, what was, what was their average monthly expense um, per unit? Um, and then we look at, you know, the budget when we do our underwriting, our pro forma, we look at that, you know, so, um, and then, then based off of the information we have, based off of how we think we can manage the property and how the previous property manager managed the property, um, we, we set a goal, we set a target for where we want to be under, um, you know, and um, that, that's essentially how we get to it. Um, right now, off the top of my head, I, I can't tell you exactly what the number is per property, um, but each property is a little different because, you know, there, there's different expenses involved. You know, some properties have active security um, monitoring systems, you know, some, some properties have, you know, certain contracts that others don't. You know, so, you know, we don't have an across the board number. We just do it individually for each property because of the differences between, you know, different properties. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, very good. Um, You know, one of the other key aspects of running a rental business is making sure you're taking care of your customers, uh, the tenants. And we talked about that earlier when kind of knowing who the customer base is and attracting the right customers. Um, How do you then go on on an ongoing basis to kind of create a culture of customer service and make sure that, you know, tenants are satisfied and they're even excited about living at the property to the point they are telling their friends about it. Um, you know, one thing that we mentioned already is just like the, we, we want the property to look nice, you know? So um, when we take over a property, we'll, we'll generally have our property manager do a tenant survey. Um, you know, and, and we go in with an idea of what we want to do. Um, but then we'll put these things on a survey and just say, Hey, if, if the new ownership could fix one thing at this property, what would you want it to be? You know, and just to see what they, what they come up with, you know, some, sometimes it's a, you know, multiple choice, you know, but, uh, you know, I think that's, that's one thing that we do. And then when they see stuff actually happening, you know, that's, that's kind of a key indicator to them that, you know, we, we are trying to make the place nicer, you know, so, um, you know, we, we try to make sure that our um, property managers communicating with them, um, you know, right now with, with our COVID response, we're, we're looking at, uh, you know, potentially just sending each one of our residents a, a small gift card, you know, not, not enough to make a difference, but enough just to say, Hey, look, you know, we are thinking about you We're you know, um, you, we understand these might be hard times, Here's a little token um, of, of what we can do. Um, so I, I think just just making sure that, that that our property manager is responsive, make sure that we have kind of a little litmus test of, of what's going on there, what the, what they need, um, and then you know just just walking around and asking. You know, so um, you know, for example, we were at one apartment one day, and uh, um, a twenty-something-year-old you know woman was out walking her dog. You know, we just started talking to her. And in that conversation, she she mentioned that the washers and dryers never work. You know, well, we ended up getting a contract with a company shortly thereafter to put washers and dryers in there instead of using our own. You know, so they're, they're going to take care of the maintenance. They're going to take care of everything else and, you know, send us a check at the end of the month for, you know, um, you know, whatever income they um, they received over over their expense. So, you know, it's just one of those things where you, you try to be responsive. You try to have dialogue and you try to listen. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're also offering, 
um, you know, concessions or a concessions to current residents if they refer their friends, you know, so um, I think what we're doing at one property is a $200 concession if they refer somebody who signs a lease and that's taking in reduced rent, you know, $100 for the next two months or $200 in one month, whatever they want to do. Yeah, those are some great ideas. And I, I like the idea of being actively engaging with the tenants through a survey or through those one-on-one -on -one conversations. You know, so many times tenants might notice something with the property but not report it, like those mm -hmm. <laughs> the laundry issue. Uh, yeah. They just think somebody else probably already did it. Uh, management probably already knows about it. It's not my responsibility. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, and I don't know. I mean, some tenants, um, w w when they know you're part of the ownership group, you know, some tenants are, are you know, just going to clam up and not say anything. And other tenants are just going to, you know, air all the dirty laundry, you know, hey, well, six years ago, the management said they did this. And then three years ago, they said, you know, um, so, yeah, whenever possible, you know, we, we try to keep that 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 line open. Um, you know, one, one apartment that, that we bought, um, the biggest complaint, for example, was there wasn't enough parking. And we realized this going in. There's 40 units in the building. There's 25 parking spots, you know, so and there, there's plenty of land to, to put parking in. So um, and, you know, small wonder when we when we put in the survey in um, the number one response was we need more parking spots. You know, fortunately, it's something we budgeted to, um, you know, the uh, the weather and uh, actually the, the coronavirus right now is delaying that. But it, it's something that we're going to end up putting in. And, you know, hopefully that that puts a message across to every resident in the building that, uh, you know, number one, they, they all saw the survey. The overwhelming majority said we need better parking. And when we come through with better parking at the end of the day. You know, it's going to be like, hey, they're listening to us and they're actually putting money into this place. Yep. Yeah, that's great. So um, obviously when you're in real estate investing, there's lots of benefits. You know, you can have some passive income, although as an active man uh, owner, syndicator, you know, there's lots of responsibilities there still. Um, but what are some of the difficulties you've run into? Maybe something that's unexpected um, that was challenging and how did you learn from it? Unexpected. Um, you know, there, there, there's a couple of things, you know, and, and, you know, just just budgeting, you know, and what are the additional expenses, you know, and that, that's something that I think, you know, we, we probably could have done a little better. And we just maybe maybe we just didn't know, you know, for example, you know, we, we get a quote to paint a building for X. And then once they come in, you know, the, the number almost doubles because of, you know, hey, there's, you know, we've got to replace wood here, we've got to replace wood there. Um, you know, the, the parking lot that I was, I was just speaking about, we had a quote to replace it, you know, and it, it wasn't a small number. I mean, it was resealing a parking lot and then building more parking. Um, but turns out we have to have some architectural drawings on it done, you know? Um, so, you know, the quote we had was from the people who were actually putting the, the asphalt down and this is how much it's going to cost to put the asphalt down. Um, but they didn't include, you know, the, the permits and everything else. So, you know, a, a lot of it's, you know, just, you know, learning, learning from experience, you know, and, you know, now, now we're realizing that, you know, we, we've heard this a million times before from experienced indicators, you know, if you think you're going to spend X, you know, add 10% to that, you know, raise that amount of money, because there are going to be overages here and there and just about everywhere, you know, so um, be, being flexible with the budget is, is something that, uh, 
um, you know, we've learned we have to do. And, you know, um, I, I think as we get better at this, you know, we're going to be able to answer, ask better questions, you know, with the contractors, you know, what items are going to lead to this quote, you know, getting bigger, you know, what things are there out there that can turn this $30,000 quote into a $50,000 job, you know, and just starting that dialogue with them. And then, you know, if, if there's any red flags, you know, maybe we get them back out again and just say, Hey, can you take another look and, you know, revise your estimate based off of the condition, you know, because I'm going to budget 30,000. And if it comes back at 50, I'm going to be really mad, you know, um, regardless of whether it needed it or not, you know, I want you to go out and we'd have that conversation. We're having that conversation a little more bluntly with the contractors. Um, and it's just, Hey, I want to know now, you know, if, if you're saying you're going to have to potentially replace, you know, some soft or potentially replace, you know, some of the paneling, why don't you go look at that right now? Why don't you walk around the buildings, look at the soffit, look at the paneling, you know, and come back to me and say, this is how much I think I'm going to need to replace and revise your estimate. So anyway, a lot of it's just, you know, learning, learning from the mistakes that you've made, um, learning from the places that you have under budgeted, you know, and unfortunately, you know, we've, we've kept enough, you know, buffers in there that we've been able to uh, absorb these things on the fly. But, uh, you anyway, know, that, 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 I think that's probably, probably it. Yeah. Well, that's a really good point. Um, I know it reminds me of a time I replaced a roof on my fourplex. You know, I was planning just to remove and replace that uh, flat rubber roof. But, mm -hmm. of course, you didn't think about, well, the decking wasn't great. And then once you tear off the decking, well, the insulation isn't great. And, mm -hmm. you know, the wrapping on the sides. So there's so many contingencies that if you just knew what questions to ask, you could get the contractor at least gives you those contingency line items yeah. ahead of time up front. Yeah. And, and um, funny that you mentioned roofs. The uh, I, I told you up front, the difference between quotes on one single roof was from 64 to 210,000. Um, the 210,000 quote, we actually asked them to, to quote us worst case scenario and their worst case scenario was replacing all the paneling underneath and the insulation as well. You know, so, I mean, there, there was a story behind that one that I didn't say earlier, but that's exactly what it was. You know, if everything's perfect and all we're doing is, you know, resealing it, you know, you're, you're going to have a $60,000 bill, you know, but if we get in and realize that we've got to replace paneling, we've got to replace, you know, um, you know, all the flashings and, and everything else, you know, here's, here's what the bill is going to look like at the end. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we, 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 I, Ideally, you know, the, the, the number in the beginning and the number at the end match. But, you know, obviously we realize that, uh, you know, contractors aren't going to work at a loss. You know, if, if they have a $30,000 contract and their expenses are going to be 50, they're, they're not going to work it. So um, it ends up being, you know, more a conversation, more of a conversation piece up front um, right now than it was before. And, you know, um, you know, hopefully that avoids some of the, you know, over budgetized items later. Yep. Yeah, you definitely don't want to be in that position where you're mid-project and then they say, well, to finish this the right way, we got to add on $20,000. Yeah. You know, and, and coming up with $20,000 in some cases, you know, it's like, well, where's that coming from? You know, um, well, maybe we won't do X or maybe we won't do Y or we'll have to trim, you know. So at some point, you know, you're, you're going to be robbing Peter to pay Paul on, on the budget items. Yep. Now, I want to go 
kind of backwards a little bit in the conversation towards that um, role with the, working with the property manager. And mm-hmm. obviously, the manager is going to do a lot of the day-to-day operations for you. Um, but you want to have input as the business owner. And so how do you balance that of, you know, letting them do do what they do, have, you know, that's their expertise um, versus, you know, having some input, having even some control over the way that your properties are run? You know, with with a beginning relationship, and, and we, we've told this to everybody who's who's managed with us up front, we're going to ask for a lot of information, you know, just a whole lot of information. We're going to ask why a whole bunch, you know, just just to make sure that we're getting, you know, the, the right service, you know, so, um, you know, one, one example, you know, we've got a quote in for a renovation. Um, you know, this is a building downtown Spartanburg, and it was, you know, I think $1,800 to put tiling on the kitchen. You know, it's just like, that's a ridiculous number. I'm like, I can, I can put LVP in 900 square feet for that price, you know, so why are we paying $2,000 to tile a hundred square foot kitchen, you know? And, you know, we, we send them, we make them answer the questions and, and come back. So, you know, and it, it's, it's kind of a, a hard process to navigate because, you know, they, a lot of property managers don't want to have to answer all of those questions, you know, but, you know, um, so, you know, this, this is, this is where, you know, somebody with a little more finesse than me has to go in and ask the questions. You know, I'm I'm great to point it out to my partners, but um, you know, end, end of the day, um, you know, we're we're looking for kind of the whys behind decisions. You know, we, we give them you know a certain amount of leeway up front. You know, there, there's there's always a you know anything up to this threshold you can you can do without our approval. You know, anything above this threshold, you need to talk to us. You know. Um, so, you know, when, when things come, when, when they, when they send us the estimates for things above the threshold, you know, we're going to ask number one, why? And number two, we're, we're also going to ask, um, you know, what they have done to, to make sure we're getting, you know, the best bang for a buck, the best, best value for the price, the price tag that's going to get, you know? So, um, and then if, if they can't answer, can't answer that question up front, we make them dig a little more, you know, um, you know, and, and honestly that, that has created friction in the past because, you know, they're, they're busy and they, they don't want to dig, but, you know, at the same time, we need to make sure that, you know, we're getting the best value and we're not just getting the easy answer. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, once again, it's, it's, it's something that takes a little more finesse than I have, you know, I'm, I'm a little more direct and that's, that's why we partner with people. You know, that's why we partner with people who can, um, who can handle that situation a little better. Yep. Well, that makes sense. Uh, you know, setting those expectations up front, I think, is really important uh, that you're going to be asking why so that they don't take offense. You know, it's, it's not that you're second-guessing them. It's just you need to understand and you need to know that it's, it's a, you know, a thought-through process. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, I mean, we're, we're in it together. You know, they're going to get a certain percentage, but – you know, if we can increase revenue, you know, their percentage goes up just like our percentage goes up, you know, so it's, we're, we're in it together at the end of the day, you know, the, the better they, better we do, the better they do. And, you know, most, most property managers understand that. Um, and, you know, most property managers understand that, you know, a little more effort up front in the, um, the renovation process is going to, um, basically translate to increased revenue down the line 
in the form of rents. You know, if they can get a 10% rent bump for us, they're also getting a 10% um, increase to their own revenue because, you know, a lot of, well, not the case always, but, you know, a lot of the property managers have a, a flat percentage plus payroll or just a flat percentage um, that they're charging us as owners to manage the property for them. So, you know, anything they do to increase our bottom line is also going to increase their bottom line. Yep. Very good. And then, so with your military background, are there some uh, disciplines or strategies or systems that you've been able to, you know, cross over and apply to the rental property business? Systems? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, a lot of the systems don't necessarily translate directly, you know, but, uh, you know, something that, that we do, um, you know, that there, there's a, a I'm going to probably attribute this to the wrong general. I want to say it's, uh, um, actually, I'm not even going to say, but, you know, plan is worth nothing. Planning is everything, you know? So, you know, the, the more detail we go into to planning, um, the better off we're going to be because nothing, you know, and, and another, another phrase that I, I can't, you know, attribute the quote to is, you know, every plan, no plan survives first contact, you know? So, you know, in, in the military, you're, you're going to have a battle plan, whether it's tactical or a strategic plan, you know, but as soon as that first shot's fired, you know, that plan is going to go out the window. Nothing is going to happen exactly like you planned it, you know, but if you've put forth the effort um, into the planning process, you know, you're able to adjust more, more quickly and more seamlessly um, than you would if you, if you didn't put the, you know, go through the mental gymnastics to get that plan done. So I think that's, that's really the kind of biggest takeaway from the military is, you know, the plan is worth nothing, but the planning process, you know, that's what's worth everything. Hmm. Um, because, you know, end of the day, there's, you know, you know, we, we have a nice little box, you know, that uh, here, here's what our plan is going in, you know, and so far we're three for three at not meeting that plan 100%. So we, we've had to make adjustments on the fly. You know, we've had a couple of expenses that have popped up that we, we didn't uh, didn't have budgeted, you know, so um, I, I'd say that's it, you know, just planning and planning and planning. Yep. Well, I, I like that. That's good. Um, speaking about planning, um you know, some people go into a rental property with the plan to hold it forever and pass it down mm -hmm. to their gener uh, their heirs generation to generation. Um, others, obviously, a lot of times in the syndication space, you typically go in with a five, seven-year hold, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, how do you approach knowing and planning when's the right time to sell your investment? So we, we have a uh, kind of a target that we're, we're advertising to our investors, you know? So um, if, if we think we're going to give them a 15% return on their investment, you know, we really want to hit that number. You know, we want to, we want to be able to deliver what we've, what we've advertised. Um, however, we're also opportunists, you know? So, um, you know, one, one syndication we did, we advertised a five to eight year hold because that's how long we thought it would take to be able to hit that 15% mark. Um, on a different syndication we did there, it was, it was a unit when we purchased it, it was at 60% occupancy, you know, and we figured that within two years, we could probably meet, meet the business plan and, and, and work it out. But, you know, we are opportunists, you know, if, if the market is, is really hot in three or four years 
and we have a five to eight year hold, you know, if we can meet that 15% average annual return, or that 15% IRR that we advertised, um, or even exceed it by selling it early, um, you know, I think that's, you know, that we, we will definitely consider that, you know, it's, it's in our best interest and it's in the investor's best interest as well. You know, so, um, you know, we, we advertise, you know, each, each, each deal is a little different. You know, I know there's some, some really big syndicators that say, Hey, I do every deal like X, you know, the, the, the splits are you know, always the same every time I do everything, you know, um, I don't think you can apply the same template to every apartment community. Um, so, you know, we will look at everything on its merits and we'll say, okay, you know, in order for us to maximize our returns to investors, you know, here's, here's the anticipated hold time. Um, but we also tell the investors that, you know, this is, this is how long we expect the hold time to be. Um, but if the market conditions are such that we can exceed this number prior to, yes, we will seek to sell it or, you know, we, we also, one thing we don't plan, um, we don't plan refinances in our numbers, you know, because, you know, I'm, I'm a math guy. I've got two degrees in math. I was working on a PhD. Um, you can artificially inflate your returns by fudging your um, refinance numbers just a little, little bit. You know, you, you can take something from average returns of 15% to 20%, um, and that artificially inflates your numbers. So we don't put a refinance in the numbers, but, you know, if, you know, one, two, three years after, you know, purchasing a property, it looks like we can refinance, do a cash out refinance and return investor capital. We'll also do that. So, you know, end of the day, you know, same, same philosophy applies. You know, we have a plan, but we've also looked, you know, and this is, you know, a very, very military term and all the branches and sequels, you know, what happens if X, what happens if Y, you know, and, and we continue each one of these um, thought processes down to, to, to fruition. So end of the day, you know, we, we've done a lot of the mental homework. We've done a lot of the analysis and we've got a lot of what ifs planned and we're opportunists. If the market looks great um, in three years and we can refinance and return a boatload of capital, we'll do that. You know, if, you know, this COVID um, depression lasts longer than we had anticipated, you know, we may have to extend things out, you know, instead of the five-year mark, maybe the six, seven, or eight-year mark. Um, but on the flip side, we're also communicating any changes to our investors um, as quickly as we can. Yep. Well, that makes sense. Um, and I, as I'm looking at this uh, decision, uh, not for me personally, just that people are making, um, you know, I, th I think that seems to be the case for most syndicators. Um, do you think your outlook on that would be different if it was all your own capital? I mean, is there any downside to selling early versus holding it for that 30 years or 60 years or whatever it might be? You know, I, I would say it has to be tied to your goals, you know, so if it was my personal, you know, money or, or folks capital and, um, you know, incidentally, there there is, you know, one investment we have where we, we own 100% of it, um, you know, it really depends on what our goals are, you know? So when you're syndicating, um, you know, you have to find kind of a happy medium that allows you to bring in enough money, you know, but uh, you know, our goals is, as you know, the, the four principles of four Oaks capital is, you know, we're looking to cash flow. We're looking to have, you know, to generate passive income for the long term. you know? So, you know, end of the day, 
you know, what's going to drive, you know, our business is what can we do to increase our passive, you know, our annual passive cash flow. Um, however, you know, when we're looking at investors, you know, we, we do quite a bit to try to keep a pulse on, on what people are looking for. You know, what, what hold times are too much, too long, what hold times are too short, you know, and what their, their general expectations are. So, um, you know, look, looking, you know, when, when to, when to sell, we try, um, and this may not be where you're getting, but we try to make sure that the deal is structured so that our interests on each particular deal are aligned with our investor interests so that there's never a question um, between, well, if we do X, it's going to benefit us, but not so much our investors. And if we do Y, it's, it's going to be the opposite. So, um, yeah, really, you know, long answer to a short question is it really depends on what, what the goals are, you know. So um, our goal is cash flow and our long term, you know, you know, five, eight, ten years you know, we're looking at each deal and saying, okay, number one, we have to meet investor criteria, but is this going to contribute to our long-term goal of increasing our, our passive income? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, everybody needs to take that time um, at the beginning of their investing career mm-hmm. and figure out what their goals are and then kind of reassess them as time goes on because obviously goals can change. Yeah. But that's that's really important. Well, listen, uh, Brian, uh, we've gone kind of long here, and I, I appreciate all the insight you've shared. Um, I do have some final questions, uh, but before that, uh, any final uh, thoughts on just the business planning, business systems that we've discussed so far? Yeah, you know, I, I'd be uh, kind of ungrateful if I didn't acknowledge some some people um, in, in this one. You know, I didn't come up with everything myself. Um, you know, I... I had a mentor that really helped me through the process. You know, Josh Eidink is his name. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was through the Michael Blanc mentorship program, you know, so, you know, going in, I realized that one thing that we didn't have was experience, you know? Um, and so, you know, we tried to do everything we could to, to get the experience, you know, um, um, the experienced outlook on things. So um, I, I paid for Michael Blanc mentorship and, you know, Josh Eidingen was, was key in helping us to, to bring these systems up. Um, and then one of my partners, Todd Butler, was also in the Michael Blanc program. And his coach was Drew Whitson. And, and I think you know Drew. Um, yeah. and, and Drew partnered with us on some of these. And, you know, he, he's a resource that we go back to over and over and over again. Um, probably not enough, to be honest with you. But, uh, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, most of the success we have had has been because we have reached out to other people who are successful and have learned from their lessons um, prior to learning lessons, you know, on our own. Yep. Now, that's really great. You know, a lot of people try to go it alone. I think that's been, for me, one of the things that slowed me down is I, I'm kind of an independent-minded person and I like to start my own thing, do my own thing. But there's a lot of value in learning from others and um, partnering with others. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. It's great. Well, um, like I mentioned, I've got some closing questions here. Um, so number one is why do you get up in the morning? Why do I get up in the morning? Well, I, I've got five kids, you know, so um, even if I don't want to get up in the morning, the noise level gets to a certain point to where it's bad. But 
you know, at the end of the day, you know, I, I want to provide a lifestyle, you know, for my kids, for my family. Um, you know, the, the military has been a very stable income, but it's also taken me away from my family more than I want. So, you know, I, I think, I think the better question is why am I doing what I'm doing right now with real estate, you know, which, which drives me to get up in the morning. And that's, that's to be able to be with my family, you know, to have, you know, the best of both worlds, you know, the, the income I make right now, you know, as a, as a Marine officer is, is good. But on the flip side, you know, my schedule changes, you know, weekly, you know, I can get told tomorrow that I'm going to be gone for the next year and there's nothing I can do about it. So I'm doing this so that, you know, my younger kids don't have to go to 10 different schools before they graduate. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, and then the next question, you you may have already answered this in, in your previous statement, but what's a person or event in your history that's been monumental in creating who you are today? Hmm. Wow. Um, you know, restricting it to kind of the real estate. Actually, I would say the most significant event was probably a, a two-year event. Um, I served a mission for my church when I was, you know, 19 to 21 years old. And I think that's that's just kind of shaped who I am in my thinking more than in any other period of my life. You know, I was, you know, I thought I was poor growing up, you know, until I spent two years in South America, you know, and, you know, I came back grateful for the upbringing that I had, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we weren't rich, but we had all of our basic needs met, you know, we never had to wonder if we were going to eat tomorrow, you know, um, you know, so I think I think that's just kind of framed everything else and given me, you know, a much different outlook on 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 life and, and the blessings we have just being born in the United States of America. You know, you know, we, we there, there there was this, you know, 99 percent to 1 percent movement that was going on in the U.S., which I thought was laughable because anybody born in the U.S. is already in the 1 percent of the world. Yeah. You know, so. um yeah, I'd say, you know, a two-year mission for, for my church. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that answer as well. You know, just last night, I was reading to my girls, my, my two oldest girls, um, some information from another country about how their situation is during this COVID-19. And it's drastically different. I mean, we think we have it bad because we're locked in our houses or whatever it might be. But mm -hmm. it's nothing compared to some of these other places in the world that they're told to stay home, but that means they don't have any food. Yeah. Yeah. And when it comes, when it comes between a choice of food or obeying what the government tells you to do, everybody's going to choose food, mm -hmm. you know? And, you know, I, my, my day job with the Marine Corps, I'm a, I'm a foreign area officer, you know? So, so Latin America is, is, you know, what I'm interested in for, for my day job. Um, incidentally, that's, you know, where, where I served my mission and where I, where I started really, you know, kind of falling in love with that region. But, you know, there, there's countries there that don't have the medical capabilities to respond, you know, so they don't have the, you know, the um, institutions to the point to where they can, they can actually, you know, come up with a coherent plan. And I mean, COVID is basically going to be tearing through these nations and we're not going to see the numbers because they also don't have the ability to test, you know, so they're, they're not going to come up with big numbers saying this is how many people are infected, this is how many people died because they just don't have the capability to track that, you know? And so diseases like COVID, you know, we're, we have a response here, you know, and our numbers look very, you know, poor compared to the rest of the world, 
when you put it into the context of saying, you know, places like Bolivia and Venezuela just don't have the capability to even test people, you know, it makes our numbers you know not so bad. Yeah. Well, I'm going to add another question just because I see that uh, sign behind you, mm-hmm. and I can only see the bottom. It says the most important word. There you go. Okay. Ever. Hustle. Hustle. Verb. The most important word ever. Okay. Is there yeah. any story behind that, or why, is, why does that mean so much to you? Um, our uh, SEC attorney sent that to me, you know, and it was just one of those things where, you know, I get this big package in the mail. Um, you know, I, I, I sent him a text, you know, on New Year's Day, and I said, our, our goal for 2020 is to pay our SEC attorney 100 grand this year, you know. <laughs> um, you know, and it was just one of those things where, you know, a little, little while later, I got the sign from him, but, you know, he, he's been with us. He's, he's been, you know, somebody that we've been able to, you know, build a relationship with. Um, and you know, he's been solidly in our corner. And I think, you know, we, we've had, we've had a lot of hangups in the acquisition process and we've been able to get through them all so far. And, you know, at, at the end of, you know, closing on our, you know, first property, you know, there was a lot of hangups, you know, he, he basically sent, sent us a note and said, Hey, I was very impressed by two things from, from your group. That's number, number one, the amount of hustle you guys put in and number two, your grit, you know? So a little while later, I get the sign in there. I'm like, well, you know what? I took, you know, four or five things down that are, you know, actually in that little corner down there just to put that sign up. Hmm. Neat. Yeah. That's great. Well, as we uh, wrap things up here, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you if they'd like to learn more about your business? The website is uh, fouroakscapital.com. I'll spell it out, no punctuation, fouroakscapital.com. Uh, my email address is uh, my first name and my last name all together. Once again, no punctuation. So Brian Briscoe at fouroakscapital.com. All right. Very good. Well, Brian, again, I appreciate your time uh, t- to be with us today and share your insights into managing our rental portfolio so that we can achieve the greatest success possible. I also appreciate the uh, service that you have uh, put in for our country. And uh, with that, I, I wish you well, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot, John. I appreciate your time, and I uh, you know, appreciate all you do for you know, people trying to, to learn more about this business. Wonderful. And briefly to our audience, thank you for listening or for watching this episode. If you got anything out of it, be sure to let us know. The best way to do that is either on a comment on the YouTube video or by going ahead to Apple Podcasts and giving us a rating and review so that other people can learn more about it. And thank you so much. We will see you on the next episode. Take care. The opinions shared on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be taken as a solicitation for representation or investment in any specific offering. Please consult with your financial, legal, tax, and real estate advisor before making any investment decisions. John Stiles is a licensed Minnesota real estate agent with Bridge Realty. Thanks for tuning in to Maximizing Your Property Value, the apartment owner's guide to operating rental properties as a successful business. If you're considering scaling up, downsizing, or right-sizing your real estate investment portfolio, it's important to know how to determine your property's value in today's market. That's why I've put together a free ebook for you called How to Calculate Your Investment Property's Value. To get your copy, go to www.realestatestyles.com forward slash value. Now, if you found any value in today's show, be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, YouTube channel, and podcast through your favorite podcast player. All the links are in the show notes. And would you do me a big favor? 
Help me get the word out about this show by sharing with your friends on Facebook and LinkedIn. And lastly, we appreciate your five-star rating on iTunes. I really appreciate you and wish you the best in your real estate investing career. Signing off, I'm John Stiles with Bridge Realty. Make it a great day.